Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. As we continue our conversation on the subject of uh, fiscal policies and extractives, my guest today is Buddy Balde. Buddy is the Deputy Executive and Africa Director of the EITI. He provides strategic, technical, and political oversight of EITI implementation across all EITI countries, including coordinating with partners in support for implementation. He's a member of the senior management team and Buddy's responsibilities include the alignment of staff and financial resources with implementation priorities. Buddy also supervises the development and implementation of country strategies to increase the relevance and impact of the EITI initiative in Africa particularly. I have had the pleasure of knowing Buddy for more than 10 years. Buddy, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you as my guest today. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you for having me. That's fantastic. So uh, I thought we'd just go to the basics and, and ask the question. Um, can you explain what the EITI is and why it was established? Well, the EITI is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. It came about in the early 2000, um, out of a confluence of multiple factors. You will recall, Sheila, that in the late 1990s, there was a growing academic literature which documented that citizens in mineral-rich countries were not benefiting from those resources, in fact. And this paradox became known as the resource course. That is, under certain conditions, particularly where institutions are weak, fragile, or in some cases non-existent, that essentially the extractive industries could cause more harm than good. So civil society organizations started asking the question, why is it that every citizen in Alaska, for example, in the United States, gets a check in the mail every year. And yet, I, out of proceeds from the oil revenues in that uh, region, yet if you take uh, the region of the Niger Delta in, in Nigeria, where there are also oil, oil production, citizens are not only benefiting from it, but they are actually losing their livelihood because of environmental degradation. So for these reasons, it's uh, the, the civil society organization known as Global Witness and Transparency International and others launched a campaign that became known as Publisher to Pay that led to the global conference that you may you are very well familiar with that in 2003 in London whereby a number a about delegate from government, companies, industries came together for the first time, uh, including also civil society and investors to agree a common set of principles which became known as EITI principles. That's how the EITI came about. That's interesting. So it, it's been long coming and, and really it was a groundswell of this 
uh, level of discomfort with the disconnect between natural resource and ex especially extracted wealth and the benefits that flow to citizens. So it, it's clear that uh, both Global Witness uh, publish uh, what you pay, Transparency International, EITI, focus largely on extractive. And so I wanted to ask you, why in your view is uh, transparency of revenue collection and uh, expenditure important in extractives above and beyond other industries? It, it seems that we've singled out extractives here. Am I correct, buddy? Yeah, that's that's correct, Sheila. Um, the, there are many reasons for, for that. Um, the Some of the governance challenges for these industries are not unique to the industries, but there are few characteristics for this industry that makes it particularly relevant for governance and also where transparency is particularly needed. needed. The first reason is actually history. Um, for most of human history, competition for access to natural resources has been a source of tensions, conflict, mistrust, and harm to the environment, and so on. The, the other part of the, the answer, though, is that this, uh, the extractive industries in particular, uh, economic activity underpinning it requires substantial amount of capital to get the minerals out of the ground. So to mobilize that capital, government have to enter into long-term agreements with investors who will provide that capital with the understanding that uh, and the expectation that they, for, for future return, that will benefit the investors as well as the citizen. Obviously, this is a challenging setup, especially if you consider the large amount of money that is derived from uh, the, the exploitation of these resources. Just to give you an example, since the EITI was established, EITI report focusing on the disclosure of fiscal revenues, we have shown more than $2 trillion of revenues disclosed uh, that government received from the extractive revenues just in our member countries. And today we only have 57 member countries, not the whole world. So that just gives you an idea that these, there are large sums involved here. There are huge risks also involved and transparency can help empower citizens to hold their government accountable, but also ensure that companies adhere to the terms of the, the the contractual agreement and the fiscal regime that is applicable in each country. Hmm. So a, a couple of things. First, uh, the disclosure itself, because the focus clearly of your organization's uh, goal is to lend transparency to the flow of funds, both in and out of government in expenditure terms, but also out of uh, private investors into government. How well is this working, uh, given your initiative and those of others? How receptive uh, have governments, uh, especially in resource-rich countries, been to this notion of disclosing payments 
to them? Uh, well, there is a journey here. Um, that's not, uh, it would be too simplistic for me uh, to say that all governments are receptive to this matter or uniformly opposed to it. It's a, it's a nuanced picture. What we have experienced is that, and this, and yeah, this is not emphasized enough, but the EHI came about thanks to collective leadership of all key stakeholders, including government in research-rich country, in research-rich countries, where the problem lies, such as Nigeria, uh, Peru, Azerbaijan, Indonesia, they all agreed to be part of this journey at the onset. That was critical. But also government in the, from developing, developed countries where these companies mostly come from, made it clear to their companies that corruption is not acceptable, that bribing foreign government officials to secure favorable terms is no longer acceptable. So as a result of that, more and more countries are realizing that in order to attract responsible investment, they must improve their governance standards and they must be open to scrutiny and accountability. And this is where transparency comes in. Hmm. So what you're saying, buddy, is that um, transparency is not just a journey, but it's also a conduit, an important conduit in the whole uh, governance framework, because uh, you reference there uh, the absence or the desire to exclude corrupt practices. Uh, and, and, and so what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that transparency alone is not enough that much more important is governance. And, and so given that, one of the elements of governance is uh, public voice and public participation. And when EATI and other initiatives disclose these payments, in your experience, um, how capable and how equipped are the publics to digest this information and translate it into tools that they can use to engage uh, governments uh, constructed. What's the feedback in terms of the, that link between disclosure uh, and digestion and understanding and use of information? Um, that's a, a very important question because it goes to the heart of the challenge that uh, we face in translating transparency into accountability and eventually to good governance and improved living standards for citizens. The, here at the EHI, we often say that uh, transparency is a necessary but not sufficient requirement. And this is why EHI has two pillars. There is the transparency angle, which is a global standard that enable companies and government to disclose information following a clear set of requirements. But then the second aspect is participation. And here, 
each and every EITA member countries. And in Africa, we have 26 member countries. In each and every member country, they have to establish a multi-sector group which ensure active, full and active participation by civil society. So you take countries like the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the space for the multi-sector group there is a space for dialogue between the government companies and stakeholders both at national and subnational level to discuss how the, the, the sector is managed. So the capacities for civil society to use that data to interrogate the data and also to hold companies and government accountable is essential for us to achieve our objective. Right. So, um, you know, you've indicated that there's about uh, presently 57 uh, members, uh, sovereign uh, members, that is. And I wanted to find out uh, what about uh, companies and, and, and the extent which you find extractive companies, both in the petroleum mineral sector. What is the overall sentiment? Is, is there a groundswell of uh, a participation and support to the EITI or are we finding that uh, as with say countries, we are still very much in the minority? Um, within companies, the, the reach of the ATI is actually fairly similar on the government side and corporate uh, more generally. So we have about 60 uh, companies, international oil and gas and mining companies that support the ATI, who are part, part of the multilateral board that governs the global standard. Now, at the national level, we have more than 2,000 companies that disclose information regularly every year in each and every EITI member country. And the reason for this is because the EITI principles set out at the beginning that we must ensure an equal playing field for companies at the national level. So it doesn't matter whether a company is from headquarters in Russia, in China, or the United States. If the company is operating in an EITI member countries, the same rules of this transparency and accountability must apply the same way. So you will see that our reach in terms of disclosure at national level goes well beyond those 60 companies who support us at the international level who tend to be, to be honest if you, Western-based companies, and we hope to expand that and gather more support from other regions as well, such as China. I mean, right now we have we are making some progress in that space. We we have supporters such as Qatar Petro Energy, which uh, recently announced its support to us, or actually the OCP in Morocco, which is a state-owned mining and, and industrial uh, company that uh, is the largest controller of uh, phosphate. It controls more than 50% uh, of the market share of, uh, of phosphate and actually more than 70% of the world reserves. 
which is a crucial mineral for uh, for your auditors. This is a mineral that goes into the production of fertilizers, for example. So we see a growing trend there that uh, the group of companies supporting the IETA is growing. We also see that investors are asking questions now, asset owners are asking questions about what is, is the new term called ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance standards. So for all those reasons, we are optimistic that more and more companies will subscribe to to, to high degree of uh, transparency and accountability. Yeah, it's interesting then uh, the picture that the emerges, uh, isn't it, uh, Buddy, that uh, of course you have a finite uh, number, at least for now, of uh, countries, but companies themselves, when if, if you have 60, it doesn't necessarily end there because you may have 60 uh, members, but they operate in different jurisdictions. And therefore, by definition, once they subscribe, you have a multiplier effect. I, I wanted to, to follow up on two things. The one is state-owned entities. Uh, and, and you mentioned OCP in Morocco, which I, I know quite well. It's, it, I have to say it's one of the most successful uh, state-owned mining uh, entities and it has been going for a very long time, both in terms of uh, uh, market footprints, you know, financial performance, and also uh, vertical integration downwards of the value chain. So, so I think if you succeed with the likes of OCP, it could set a very good example. So I did want to ask you, you know, clearly some of the largest companies in the extractives are state-owned. Does it uh, concern the EITA that there hasn't been as uh, positive a response from state entities as perhaps listed companies in terms of uh, support of the EITI? Um, it, it does concern us, uh, but there again, the picture is, is mixed as you highlighted the OCP, the Qatar Petroleum, which is now Qatar Energy, or uh, here in Norway, um, which, Equinor, which is used to be known as uh, Red Star Oil. Um, all these companies are supporters and subscribe to the ETA. And more recently, actually, even NNPC, the, NAS the National Oil Company in Nigeria, uh, subscribe to the ETA. Now, in, in addition to those, as you say, there is the multiplier effect at the national level. So in all our member countries, the national oil company in particular has specific disclosure requirement that it must adhere to, whether they support the EATI or not. And those re disclosure requirements would apply to them equally. So for example, in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you have nine state-owned companies that operate there from Jekamine, which is the most famous ones, to more smaller ones. Um, specifically targeting specific uh, gold and specific sectors. But um, in, in all those jurisdictions, what we try to do is to uh, empower citizens, and in this case, actually even government entities, to ensure that there is adequate oversight on how those companies discharge their 
multiple obligations, which is they have commercial obligations. They also have regulatory sometimes missions. So that dual role requires close uh, scrutiny. And it's, uh, it's one of the key challenges for getting governance in this sector, sector right? So uh, I, I realize that uh, not everyone is conversant with uh, the EITI and its uh, operating model. You have used different terminology for, for countries. You have described countries as member states. You have described companies as uh, supporting the EITI. And, and now you've also said uh, whether or not companies support the EIT and our disclosure requirements uh, are still uh, imposed on them. Could you just make a, a distinction for the uh, followers of the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast? What the difference is between being a member, being a supporter, and merely uh, obliged to disclose? <laughs> Excellent question, Sheila. Um, EITI is a very unusual international organization in that we have state and non-state actors on our on our board, um, which means we have government at the international level who are members. So the most of the OECD countries, such as the United Kingdom, France, Germany, the United States, Australia, Canada, and so on. There are members of the EITI, they are supporters, supporting, uh, we call them supporting countries constituency. In addition to those, we have countries that implement the EITI standard. Those are also members, and that's where we have 57 member countries today. And I should add that some of the supporting countries are also countries that implement the standard. So Norway, um, in fact, most countries that are supporters also implement the standard. Norway, Germany, United Kingdom, the Netherlands, um, and so on. At some point, the, the United States was also implementing the standard under the Obama administration, which changed after the um, changing government there. But in Africa, we have 26 member countries who are implementing the EITI standard from Mauritania to Tanzania, DRC. It's we have it's a wide spectrum, a diverse group there. Um, it's actually one of our, as you can tell, almost half of our member implementers are in Africa. Now, in addition to the country group, we also have the companies. So we have companies supporting the AITI at the international level. And those are, we call them supporters. We have Shell, Total, and most of the mining companies that are member of the uh, ICMM um, association is a mem member supporter of the EITI. Now, at the national level, all companies operating in any country that is a member, be that in Chad, Indonesia, Peru, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, wherever. Uh, all countries operating in, in companies operating in those jurisdictions, they are required to disclose information in accordance to the ETA standards. So we call them reporters. And then lastly, we have civil society, who is also on our board uh, as uh, 
member of the established in the board. So we have publicity pay, uh, NRGI, global witness and others. And at the national level, we also have local civil society coalitions, local communities, elected officials, all representing a diverse set of uh, stakeholders at national level. That's fantastic. So really, it uh, uh, you come at this issue of governance and transparency from different angles, the sovereign, the corporate, and then, uh, you know, the actual what happens on the ground. So, you know, uh, buddy, first, as with most things, we, we start off with a concept, we translate it into a set of tools, and then we implement. And the success of anything has to do with uh, this, if you wish, uh, sequence of events functioning correctly. So it's one thing to say we disclose. It's another for the disclosure to stand to scrutiny, which is to say be accurate and reliable. In what way uh, does the EITI ensure that the information disclosed is in fact correct? Um, the, the reliability is at the core of the EITI standards. So, uh, because as, as you correctly point out, Sheila, we have to, the EITI essentially, it's a trying to do inclusive governance, a participative, true participative approach. But that requires also common set of facts that can be, that all stakeholders can agree on to build trust and inform public debate. So for these reasons, the standard at the onset clearly outlines procedures of how the data is to be disclosed, at what level of granularity, who is to compile the data, who is to reconcile it, and what's the level of verification required in order for a multi-sector group at the national level to say, we agree with these, these figures, the payment made by these companies are in fact correct. It's the, the companies, the government side have confirmed these figures that they have received them. And to the extent possible, effort to show that the revenues have gone to the right account, to the central bank, to the treasury. And we work closely with the IMF and World Bank and others to ensure that the public financial management is sound um, and that the figures that are disclosed are indeed go to, to the to the right stakeholder and sometimes transfer to 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 local communities where such legislations exist. But we have those clear uh, auditing practices. The reports are generally compiled by uh, auditing firms, but not always. Um, so you have the usual suspects such as KPMG, Ernest and Young. Uh, BDO and others, but also more and more local, uh, small consultancy organization at the local level, uh, such as in Mauritania right now, the multi-sector group there is playing a more active role to make sure that that data is, cost, is compiled and verified in a cost-effective way, because this has to be also, also sustainable. So that's something we do regularly, and we have a mechanism at the international level that we call validation, which allows us to, it's a way to help, the, it's a quality assurance mechanism to support the board to verify which countries are 
adhering to the EITI requirement and principles and requirement, which are which ones are not. Hmm. So, in an earlier statement, you quite rightly uh, uh, acknowledged that transparency per se is not a panacea, and that uh, rather than being an end in itself, the goal really is to reduce corruption and ensure that the benefits from extractives go to the citizens who need uh, the revenue and other impacts uh, the most. And that one way of doing this is this uh, tripartite between the government, the investors, and uh, civil society. And I wanted to find out whether or not over time uh, you have observed that in fact, uh, transparency is in fact uh, impacting uh, the goal to reduce uh, uh, corruption in some of the countries where you have operated longest. It, it, are we seeing that there's a correlation between a downwards trend between corrupt practices and uh, transparency through revenue disclosure and other things? Um, to, the first thing to say there, Sheila, is that, is that corruption is a very complex issue. It's a multifaceted issue. It's hard to measure. It's hard to, 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 to monitor closely. Um, having said that, we know that the transparency and obligation to disclose and the regular check that is done uh, through regular reporting and the questions that come from subsequent questions from, come from civil society and other oversight institutions such as uh, supreme audit institutions um, as a follow-up to those reports we know that is act as a check as a deterrent factor i can give you a very vivid example i heard um, from a state uh, a leader of a state-owned company uh, that I, it's probably best to not to, to, to name them, uh, and uh, you will understand why. Uh, this leader told me in in a in a meeting that um, thanks to the reporting we ask them every year, the that he has noted that bef before uh, every election before he would get repeated requests from government, high-level government officials asking for uh, specific contributions and essentially diverting state-owned companies' resources toward financing political campaigns and ensuring that that person is re-elected and so on, or just for other political interference means. And one thing that he has noticed was now with the EHR reporting, when he gets such requests, he would just say, we can give you the money, but we would, just so you know, we would need to disclose this because EHR will ask for this information. And all of a sudden, the, the request is like, no, 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 it's, it's, you can all, this cannot be disclosed and say, well, it cannot be then, um, we cannot make such payment. It's an anecdotal uh, point that I'm highlighting here, it doesn't mean a trend, but it's just to show you that transparency can act in many ways to discourage those practices. I also have to acknowledge that this is a long-term challenge. It's not easily fixed 
uh, overnight. This it took decades. Some of these practices are entrenched in sometimes uh, systems and even culture. To to be frank with you, and what is encouraging to us is that by creating this space for transparency and dialogue, we empower citizens. We see more and more citizens asking questions: Why is it this way? Why is this company? Uh, operations are having this particular effect. What will happen to the revenue paid? Um, what was the share? How those type of questions we believe are the ones that will lead to reducing the risk of corruption and improving governance in the sector more generally. Hmm. So what you're saying, uh, buddy, is that true? There is. Uh, uh, a relationship between transparency and uh, reduction correction, but it's multifaceted. Uh, transparency doesn't just go directly to reducing correction through payments, but it also goes through empowering citizens who then ask the right questions. And that it is this critical mass of, uh, if you wish, uh, you know, culture of our governance which will ultimately reduce corruption, but that if we just look at uh, transparency alone, then we're missing the point. I must say, I think that makes sense, especially that in the end, it isn't what the EITI does. It is what the citizens do to hold their governments to account that I think ultimately is more sustainable. But, but I, I still couldn't help wondering, uh, Badi, to the extent that in some countries, uh, efforts to increase disclosure is it, not really making inroads in, in reducing corruption. What, does, what lessons uh, have we learned? What does this tell us about the state of the global governance uh, environment and the effectiveness of disclosure as a tool? Uh, I mean, what, what are not mm -hmm. success notwithstanding, what for EITI have been your takeaways? Um, that we need to do more, <laughs> in, in one word. Um, for every success, we see even more challenges. Uh, progress, in it's been well recognized that uh, democratic governance is fragile and it's difficult, it's a long journey. Um, sadly, uh, we have seen a rise in uh, uh, political instability in, in West Africa, for example, um, with recent events in, in Chad, Mali, Guinea, and more recently in Burkina Faso. These are countries where EITI, they are all EITI member countries. We have worked tirelessly with so many stakeholders over many years to reform, to bring about meaningful reforms that are enshrined in legislations. Um, the amount, the robust debate that went into updating the mining code in Guinea to enshrine transparency provisions into law or, or in, in Burkina Faso to ensure that uh, payment to are earmarked specifically to local communities uh, in a specific way or social payment to companies are, are enforced and so on to and even the creation of development funds by law all those reforms unfortunately uh, 
are fragile. They, that's what we have seen with these schools. And one of our key messages today is that citizens should not, uh, this is a long battle. Um, what to me has been the most heartening part is uh, African citizens are not no longer uh, playing the victim card. They are asking their government, they are trying to hold their government accountable. They are saying this isn't good enough. Um, and it's only through that constant challenge and citizens' engagement that we can make progress. But I must say, the 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 the, the steep the, 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 we still have a steep uh, hill to climb, uh, especially in light of recent uh, development. Mm. Uh, talking of recent developments, but you have of course had uh, an unlikely ally in the form of a whistleblower uh, in a, in a in a bank, uh, which resulted, which is the now infamous. Panama uh, Papers, and, and uh, uh, in some cases, laws been uh, promulgated to try and stamp out safe havens, especially with respect to illicitly, uh, you know, secured financial gains. Is this helpful to your cause, or is it just a, a, a headliner which is a detractor but doesn't really get to the heart of the problem? Um. On balance, I would say it's helpful. I mean, we don't encourage leaks and we try to create frameworks for disclosures of reliable information that doesn't require leaking information. However, we recognize that the situation is such that um, despite our best efforts, full disclosure, comprehensive disclosure, reliable disclosure is still uh, not always forthcoming, especially on issues related to contract transparency and beneficial owners and, and so on. So these those leaks to Panama Papers and subsequently leaks related to the Paradise Papers and so on, what they all contributed to is to generate headlines which called the world attention to the problem that we have been working on all along. And we feel vindicated to some extent, and it gives us momentum to work on issues that we have been pushing, which is transparency and accountability across the entire value chain, not just on fiscal revenues. We are known for transparency in fiscal revenues, but that's only one chapter. Uh, transparency in how licenses are issued, the contracts, the beneficial owners who own the license ultimately, uh, the beneficiation in between, fiscal terms that are agreed, the payment that are made, whether those payments are going to the right account, um, and so on and so forth. So it's not, uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a more comprehensive picture, but these kind of disclosures certainly gives us momentum. Um, it also shows that the current statico is not acceptable that we all need to do something to, to reform and and, uh, and improve. And if we get it right, this is still exciting uh, agenda because uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, this sector, despite all its challenges, holds uh, enormous potential for helping improve people's lives, uh, the quality of life more generally, and help achieve most of the human development goals 
can be funded uh, through this sector if we if we get it right. Fantastic. Well, that's a wonderful note to end our conversation, but it was wonderful having you. I no doubt uh, you have your job cut out for you. Um, as I suspect, the harder you work at uh, plugging into the challenges, the harder your uh, opposites will do to try and maintain the status quo in which uh, the world's resources benefit just a few. So thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's been very insightful. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciated the conversation.